Hello there, I'm Ali and you are listening to Insight. Joining me today, well, when this episode comes out, we will be on the same continent again, but alas, we'll still be having a long distance relationship. Hello, Charlie. How are you? Good. How are you? Are you packed for your trip to San Francisco? I am so excited about that trip. And as I said, by the time this episode comes out, I'll already be there. And we are having a meet-up with the ladies of Misconduct and Esther from Once Upon a Crime at the Keystone on 4th on Saturday, July 15 at 2pm. If you go to our Facebook page, you can get all the information and RSVP. But today, today we have two long-term missing persons cases from Australia that are ones that have always been important to me. There is a third that will be our Patreon episode this month and will be out in about a week, and that will be the disappearance of Bung Siraboon. All Patreons of $2 or more will have access to that episode, and I do highly encourage you do listen because it's a case that hasn't had the media coverage it deserves. But today we will be talking about the disappearance in the 1970s of Eloise Worlidge, and that is a listener suggestion from Lisa. And Eloise is a case that it's one of the first I remember being interested in. Her photo was burnt into my memory and gave me many a nightmare as a child. The second case is a more recent one from 2005. This is a case that is firmly in the heart of both Charlie and myself. We get asked a lot to cover Madeleine McCann. We almost get daily requests. And while every missing child is important and they deserve to have their story told, there are some that haven't had the attention that they most greatly deserve. And Rama Eldenawi is one of those cases. So thank you for the listener suggestion to cover Rama's disappearance, Tara. But before we start on today's cases, a word from our new sponsor, Brooklinen. It's a running joke in our podcast that Ali and I don't sleep, but the truth is we do. We spend, like most people, about a third of our life in our beds. So we're really excited to welcome Brooklinen as a sponsor. At brooklinen.com, you can get the high-quality sheets and bedding you deserve at an accessible price. Most high-end bedding is marked up by more than 300% by the time it reaches the store, but Brooklinen cuts out unnecessary markups and manufacturing waste so that they can offer exquisite designs that will go with any room decor at an exceptional savings across their collection. This is luxury bedding. Do not get me wrong. This is just luxury bedding underpriced. I love my Brooklinen sheets. Try these sheets and I know you'll love them too. Brooklinen.com has an exclusive offer for our listeners. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use promo code SITE at brooklinen.com. In fact, Brooklinen is so confident that you'll love your new sheets that they offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all of their sheets and comforters. There's no reason not to give these sheets a try. The only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use promo code SITE at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com, promo code SITE, S-I-G-H-T. Brooklinen, these are the best sheets ever. Patricia Ann Watmuff, or Patsy, as she was known to her friends, she was working as a student teacher when she met her future husband, Lindsay Worlidge, who was from New Zealand originally. He was three years older than her and also a teacher. On October 8, 1967, the pair welcomed their first child, Eloise, 
And then two years later, Anna. And then two years after that, the family was completed with Blake in 1971. By the time Eloise was born, the couple had settled into a four-bedroom weatherboard house in the suburb of Bumeris, Victoria, and that's right by the beach. The area was filled with young, middle-class families. And it was a quiet, friendly suburb. And I know I say this in basically every story we cover in Australia, but it was a safe suburb. People left their doors unlocked, kids played in the street unsupervised, and the families, they were close. Eloise went to the local primary school, which was about two streets away from her home. And she was about to start the fourth grade in January of 1976. She was known as a shy and smart and very creative little girl like her mother. At this point, Patsy and Lindsay were married for over 10 years, and with the perfect three children, they seemed to have everything. But their marriage was on the verge of divorce. The tensions in the marriage were obvious even to the kids. Lindsay was becoming increasingly sarcastic in his comments about his wife, and not just in private either. Their friends were starting to keep their distance because it was uncomfortable to be around both of them. And this was taking its toll on Patsy's self-esteem. She was once energetic and enthusiastic, just that sort of person you wanted to be around. By this point, she was a shell of that person. Patsy wanted to try counseling, and Lindsay refused. But that didn't stop Patsy. She went on her own. While it didn't help salvage their marriage, it helped her come to terms with the end of the relationship. Being able to detach from her marriage a little more, she was able to get past her husband's put-downs. She stopped making the marriage her everything and began pursuing her own interests and just rebuilding herself. Later reports to police state that this change only increased Lindsay's resentment towards his wife. By September of 1975, four months before Eloise's disappearance, Both Patsy and Lindsay were seeing people outside of the marriage, and Patsy had asked for a separation. This would be a private separation. They weren't really ready to make the whole thing public. On the surface, on principle maybe, Lindsay agreed. After all, they were pretty much living separate lives at this point, but in reality he tried to hold off on the whole thing. He was in the process of getting his master's in business administration, And he wanted to wait until he finished his final exams in November before actually separating so that he could focus on his studies. It was only a two-month wait, and things seemed amicable enough, so Patsy agreed. They agreed that Patsy and the kids would stay in the home, and he could see them whenever he wanted to. This kept things stable for the kids. They had access to both parents without much limitation. As contentious as their marriage sounded, it seemed like they were both, at least initially, approaching the separation well. But then November came and went, and Lindsay told Patsy that he just needed more time. They agreed to stay together over Christmas for the sake of the kids, and then he would move out. They agreed that he would leave by Patsy's birthday, which was January 10. And Patsy was the one who told the children exactly what was going on. Eloise seemed the least affected by the news, maybe because she was that little bit older and she picked up on the coldness and resentment between her parents. 
And according to later statements by Patsy, Eloise had kind of grown distance from her father due to the tension in the household and the pending separation. But still, she seemed to be a happy, playful girl that she always was. And the plans were for Patsy and Lindsay to split amicably, as you said, Charlie. But it fell apart because Patsy's birthday came and Lindsay was still living there. There was a serious lack of communication, though, because what Patsy didn't know is that Lindsay had found somewhere else to live. He had inspected a property that very day, but he told the estate agents that he needed a couple more days to think about it. Now, considering he had ample time to find somewhere else to live, and he only found a place that was a possibility on the day he was meant to be gone by, to me it does show some reluctance that he was going to leave, or had planned on leaving really. I mean, why else tell the agents to wait a few extra days before making the decision? A neighbor across the street and a friend of Patsy's named Jane offered to host a birthday party, like a birthday dinner for Patsy on Saturday night. About 10 people attended the party, but Lindsay was not one of them. He wasn't invited, and he was told he wasn't welcome. There is some speculation as to what Lindsay did while the party was going on. Patsy's friends who were at the party later reported that they felt like someone was spying on them at the party and was looking through the windows. That someone was alluded to be Lindsay. Lindsay continued to deny he ever did this right up until his death this year. He did admit to walking the street and seeing whose cars were there and who was at the party. It was curiosity, according to him, not anger at being snubbed or jealousy over who Patsy might be with at the party. But he said he absolutely did not go looking through any windows. Patsy got home around 2 a.m., Lindsay was still awake, and the two got into a heated argument that went on for almost two hours. This argument was loud enough that it concerned the neighbors who could hear the screaming and yelling. Some later mentioned that they debated calling the police over it, but they did not. They didn't really want to butt into someone else's business. The following day, a Sunday, January 11th, Patsy asked Lindsay again when he was leaving and he promised he would make arrangements and be gone the following day. He took the kids to the beach for the day before he got back in touch with the real estate agent, and he committed to the house that he had previously seen, and he agreed to come in on Monday to sign the papers. And when he was home, he went to bed early, partly because it was an exhausting day emotionally, but also to avoid any further arguments in front of the children. On the Monday, he went to work and was a guest speaker at a special function with executives. After work, he went to a local hotel for drinks. Because of this, he rescheduled his estate agent appointment for the following day. He went back to the family home at around 4.45 to eat dinner with the family. Then Patsy did her own thing while Lindsay played a board game with the children. And then at around 8.30, she went to a dance class, which she normally went to. Eloise left her bedroom around 45 minutes later. She wanted a glass of milk. And then she went into the family room and she sat on her father's lap and he explained what was going on and that he was leaving and that he still loved her. And Eloise seemed fine with this and it seemed their relationship was improving. Eloise went back to bed around 10pm and she was wearing a two-piece yellow baby doll pyjama set. 
He had the words rock and roll written on the front and a musical clef emblem on the back. Lindsay had continued drinking alcohol when he had gotten home. That's besides the bottle of wine and a jug of beer he shared before coming home. He had two scotches and a bottle of wine with dinner, and then he drank port while watching television until he fell asleep there. Patsy walked home from dance class and went home briefly to grab a dress that she wanted to show her neighbour Jane. She saw Lindsay in the family room, the light was off but the television was still on, and she told him she was going to Jane's. Now, whether or not he was conscious to hear this, we don't know. She got back around 10.30. She'd later tell police the outside porch light was off and the front security flyscreen door was closed but not locked. According to police reports, the main front door was unlocked and wide open. Now, considering it was summer, it was an unusually cold night. The temperatures dropped to around 12 degrees Celsius or 53 degrees Fahrenheit. Lindsay was still in the family room with the television on, but he was asleep. She mentioned that she did think about closing the front door, but she forgot. It was around 11 o'clock by this time. She took some ironing to Anna and Blake's rooms, and then she went into Eloise, covered her back up with a blanket, kissed her goodnight, and went to bed. That would be the last time she would see her daughter. Around 11.40, Lindsay wakes up and turns the television off, and he goes to bed too. He later tells police that he checked on the children before going to bed, but then Patsy reports that this would be unlikely because it wasn't something that he usually did. Lindsay reports that he did not shut the front door himself because simply he didn't know it was left open. At 4.45 in the morning, Patsy gets up to use the bathroom. Normally the hallway light is left on for the children because... I mean, I know with my children, they don't like sleeping in complete darkness, and I imagine that was a situation here, because the last parent to go to bed would then switch the light off. Lindsay later reports that as the last parent going to bed, he simply didn't think about switching the light off. But when Patsy goes to the bathroom at 4.45, the hallway light is off. Now, it is the the belief of investigators that Eloise was already gone by this time. There are confusing and conflicting versions of events between Patsy and Lindsay as to what exactly happened that next morning. In his original statement, Lindsay said that he got up at 6.30, he went to the kitchen for some orange juice, he noticed Eloise's bedroom door was shut, he then went outside to get the milk and the newspaper from the front patio, and went back into bed. Not long after that, Anna and Blake came into the bedroom and began talking and playing, and Blake told Lindsay that Eloise wasn't in her room, but he didn't think a whole lot of it. Blake was four. He had an active imagination. Who knows what he was talking about? At 7.30, Patsy got up, and she couldn't find Eloise anywhere. Lindsay also got up to help look for her. He pulled the curtain aside, because maybe she was hiding behind there, as kids tend to do. That's when he noticed the fly screen wire had been cut and the window was open. And what Patsy reported to police is a little different. She reported that she was only woken up by Lindsay because he had come back to bed at 7.30. She said it was unusual for him to get up and get the newspaper himself because generally it was one of the children's chores. She said that Blake came into their room at the same time and like Lindsay had said, Eloise was not in her room. 
She said she left her bedroom about 8 a.m. and went into the hallway, where she was met by Anna, who also told her that Eloise was missing. However, in a different statement, 10 days later, she would say she was in the shower when Anna told her Eloise wasn't there. The rest of Patsy's version of events matches that of Lindsay's, that he found the cut screen, the window open, and all of that. So realizing Eloise was missing, Patsy calls her sister, Margaret Thomas, and runs across the road to Jane's house. For some unexplained reason, Lindsay contacts the local police instead of the triple zero emergency number. It is Margaret who arrives about half an hour later, and she's the one who contacts triple zero. The emergency operator speaks to Lindsay, and it is reported that he is, quote unquote, unemotional and offhanded in his tone. He tells the police that there was a break-in in his home and that the only thing missing is his eight-year-old child. Now, we have discussed at length in other episodes, like the William Tyrrell episode, that tone and wording in emergency calls to police to report missing children. I think both you and I agreed, Charlie, that you kind of go on autopilot in situations like these, especially when you have other children around. You want to keep the situation as calm as possible. You want to get all the facts out there. And you kind of separate yourself emotionally from the situation. It took eight minutes for local police to get there. But it soon became apparent that Eloise obviously didn't run away based on the cut wire. He immediately called for detectives who were on the scene within 30 minutes. And a task force of 15 police officers was formed. And that didn't count for more than 250 police, including search and rescue, mounted police, dog squad, and state emergency service volunteers that searched for almost three weeks. In the end, this was the biggest search operation of its type in Melbourne, and they searched local parks, the beach shoreline and sand hills, golf courses, and all throughout the local streets. At the investigation of the crime scene, Blake was one of the most important witnesses. He said he heard someone in Eloise's room on the night she disappeared. He said he heard some crackling noise. Eloise had a seagrass rug on her floor that made what could be described as a crackling noise when walked across. This is what police believe Blake heard that night, someone walking across that rug. Police forensic experts went through Eloise's bedroom inch by inch, and they concluded that the flywire screen was most likely cut from the inside. The window was the wind-out kind, and it was open to its maximum, which was 38 centimeters or 19 inches. That's a pretty narrow opening, and you would think it would be difficult to climb through and then take an eight-year-old back through the gap. And you would imagine that if you're abducting someone, you'd have to be carrying them at the same time you're climbing out. So it wouldn't be just, I climb out and then I get the child out afterwards or vice versa. If you let go of that child, that child is eight. She will run. Or scream or, yeah. Or something. So you have to imagine that this person is carrying her through the window. The fly screen wire was cut from a height of 195 centimeters or close to six and a half feet. Dust and cobwebs from around the window, they were undisturbed. And tan bark that was outside in the garden was found in the bedroom. The cobwebs and dust make it sound like no one went in or out of that window. 
but the bark from outside makes it sound like someone tracked it in. However, we don't know if Eloise was out in the garden the day before she went missing, or maybe someone else brought it in on their shoes. I know yard debris makes it into my vacuum cleaner on a regular basis, even though we don't wear our shoes in the house. It just happens when you have kids coming in and out of the house playing. And to get through the window, like we said, it would have been quite the feat, just size-wise, but the abductor would have had to wind open the window from the outside, lean in, cut the fly screen wire, and roll the wire on the inside. It is a difficult, convoluted way of doing things. It isn't impossible to do it, but we also know the front door was open. So why are you going through all this trouble of cutting a window in a difficult manner to begin with, let alone do it when you could have just walked in the front door? And obviously investigators ask themselves these same questions. Taking all of this together, in the end, investigators reasoned that it was most likely that Eloise's abductor staged the window scene to make it look like that's what happened, but had really gained entry through other means. The investigators originally began by saying that they were confident Eloise would be found alive. But they also asked Lindsay and Patsy to delay their separation. They wanted them to appear more sympathetic to the public, which I can and I can't understand. I understand that if the public knew they were going to separate and they knew the whole story, they would think that this was a parental abduction, possibly Eloise being murdered by a parent, and they would be less likely to want to help out. But then on the other hand, I understand by lying to the public and not giving full disclosure, it really doesn't help and it leads to mistrust. But Lindsay and Patsy didn't really comply with what the investigators wanted anyway. They gave separate interviews. Patsy spent most of her time across the road at her friend Jane's house. They increasingly lived separate lives and became more distant and eventually separated. And for the investigators' part, they went from house to house in the neighbourhood. They interviewed 6,000 people with a pre-prepared list of questions, and they did this over three days. And because of this effort, they were able to log 200 suspicious incidents that occurred on the night Eloise was abducted. On 10pm on January 12, one neighbour heard someone outside his home. Early the following morning, he discovered the tool shed in his yard had been broken into. Three chisels, an oil can and a pair of garden shears had been left out the front of his house. Now police tested it on the type of cuts on the screen wire and it wasn't the same that was used. At 10.30 on January 12, another neighbour in the same street saw a car travelling down the road with its headlights turned off and then an hour later saw the car parked near the Whirlidge's home. Around midnight, another neighbour was walking home by herself. She saw a young man walking along the Whirlidge fence line. This all made her feel uneasy, so she crossed the road to avoid him. Around the same time, yet another neighbour saw a young man in front of her car as she drove past the Whirlidge's home, and she saw him jump the fence. And finally, at 2am, Two neighbours reported hearing a cry of a child and hearing the sound of a car door slam. Now, as in all child abduction cases, when runaway has been ruled out, police go in one of two directions. Generally, it's someone they know. It's a family member, a family friend, or someone known to the family. 
and the other is rare, but it still happens. And that's them being the victim of a random attack. Patsy believed that Lindsay was involved. And that might be part of why they were doing separate interviews and still separated in the end anyway. And the reason was, was that it gave him a reason to stay in the house. Because she thought Lindsay may have staged this, maybe it was more of a hoax than an actual kidnapping, she also thought that Eloise was safe and that she would eventually be returned. Because of the evidence at the crime scene, the police thought it was unlikely that Eloise was taken through her bedroom window, so they initially treated both parents as suspects, although it didn't take long for them to focus their investigation on Lindsay. According to the police, they found his behavior to be detached. He seemed cold and unemotional. So an example of this, he had his rescheduled appointment to sign his lease papers later that day on Tuesday. A few hours after Eloise was missing, he contacted the estate office to cancel this rescheduled appointment, and he told them that they needed to read the newspapers to find out why. But I mean, to me, this perceived flippancy, it could have just been a simple self-defense mechanism. I mean, he's obviously frightened and grieving for his missing child, and this could have just been his way of dealing with it. And we know from the Azaria Chamberlain case where her mother didn't do it and has been completely exonerated, she also said things that were kind of awkward and some of it seemed kind of cold. Again, it's judging someone based on their reaction to trauma. It's not, we can't do that. It's not a perfect system to do that. And early in the investigation, Lindsay was the prime suspect. He was in the media as well. I can understand him being self-defensive. On the day Eloise was abducted, Lindsay asked the police to give him a polygraph test. They refused the offer at first, but on the fourth day, he was taken to the local police station and interviewed. However, at this stage, he was considered the main and only suspect, so they put him into a room and they left him there. He wasn't given a polygraph. Lindsay later publicly complained that the police were trying to use psychological techniques to get him to confess. He was eventually cleared officially almost a year later, but I don't think he's ever fully been cleared in the eyes of the public. He did eventually take a polygraph test 26 years later. On February 14th, 2002, he was connected to a polygraph machine and asked questions about the abduction. Like so many elements of this case, these results were not conclusive. But I don't know whether those results had to do with him being deceptive or just the the sands of time. Yeah, I mean, I could see why he would fail a polygraph as he's sitting there trying to remember back 26 years. And he had drunk a lot that night, so I can understand why some memories may be fuzzy. Yes, and I don't... As far as Lindsay goes... Had Eloise gone missing while her mother was at dance class, then maybe. But we know that she was home in bed because her mother checked on her. So Lindsay, in a probably still drunk but heading towards hangover, got up at three in the morning and kidnapped her and hid her and got back in bed without Patsy waking up at all to any of this. It The timing simply doesn't make sense. Exactly. 
So Lindsay himself believed his daughter was taken by a stranger. At the time, he said that he didn't believe she would go willingly with someone in the middle of the night, that Eloise was timid and shy and she wouldn't leave the house without her mum or dad or brother or sister. Now, police did look at 10 general types of suspects. They looked at known sex offenders in the area. They looked at any sex offenders that lived in Australia that had been involved in child abductions or who broke into homes. They looked at known general creepers in the area. They looked at local service providers, babysitters, tradesmen. They looked at door-to-door salesmen, you know, people involved in Eloise's school and any government agencies who had ever been in contact with the family. Police ended up interviewing more than 100 family and extended family members and more than 200 other people. And then a little over a month after Eloise's disappearance, on January 20, the Whirlage Task Force was disbanded. The file was sent to the local police and they were responsible for handling and investigating any tips that came in. In the early 1980s, the file was moved to the Homicide Squad and officially archived as a missing persons case. It was the police's way of declaring that they believed that Eloise was no longer alive. When police reopened the case and began reinvestigating in 2001, they found that a bunch of key evidence and vital files were missing. Among the missing documents was the original police interview with Lindsay. But they managed to unearth two new suspects. In their happier days, Patsy and Lindsay were connected to the local amateur theatre. In 1975, a man joined the group. Police learnt that this man was a convicted child molester. Detectives were also discovered a previously unknown man that was convicted of multiple child sex offenders and he worked at a local milk bar. But police found nothing to link these men to the abduction. Another suspect for a time was a serial killer and rapist who operated out of Melbourne from the mid-1960s to the mid-1980s. Raymond Edmonds was also known as Mr. Stinky because of his body odor. And it has to be the best serial killer name ever. This body odor was from his work on a dairy farm. He smelled kind of like a mixture of chemicals and sour milk and manure. So that must have been pleasant. Edmonds was convicted of the 1966 murder of 18-year-old mechanic Gary Haywood and the rape and murder of 16-year-old Abina Maddell. Haywood was shot through the head with a 22 caliber rifle and Maddell was raped and then bludgeoned to death. But it wouldn't be until 1985 that he was caught when his fingerprints were taken after an arrest for a flashing incident and they matched the double murder from nearly 20 years previous. So though he committed this murder in 1966, he was still free and out and about when Eloise went missing. Edmonds also had accusations against him for abusing physically and sexually both his wife and his young daughter. Edmonds was also convicted in a series of rapes in the 1970s and the early 80s, the then unknown rapist being called the Donvale Rapist. Because of the span of his known crimes and when he was finally caught, these are very unlikely to be his only violent offenses. He is a suspect in 32 other rape cases and likely also committed other murders. The two things that link him to Eloise were that, one, he was in the general area at the time, 
And two, he owned a similar car to the one witnesses saw the night she was taken. But there's been no other evidence found to link him to Eloise. And frankly, Eloise didn't fit his usual victimology. So he's been cleared in the case. To me, I think it's someone in the circle of friends the parents had, someone who Eloise knew. As her father said, she wasn't someone that would go with someone voluntary. And you think at eight years old, she would have made some kind of some kind of fight back in being abducted. And here's why I think that. So the abductor, either before or after he picked up Eloise and she didn't cry out, he then stopped to cut the wire screen from the inside. He then went outside and, oh no, possibly tossed that handful of bark through the window, all while holding on to an eight-year-old child who's not making any noise. Look, I don't think so. It would be in the best interests of a stranger to simply leave the home the way he came in and just be done with it. The primary motivation of this act of staging would be to misdirect the police from any other avenues of exit, like the open door. But why would someone feel the need to do that? To me, it's because someone felt the need to for the police to believe someone came through the window. They needed to look like it was obviously a stranger who took Eloise, because a stranger has no need to make it look like it was a stranger. So to me, I think Eloise's abductor is someone close to the family. I agree completely. I'm sure that surprises everybody because we <laughs> we always we agree. very often we don't discuss this too much in advance, but we often come to similar conclusions. I think it was someone Eloise knew who could lure her out and manage to get her out. If that scream and the car door was Eloise being kidnapped, you know that the witness heard. I can see that happening if she got lured outside and then the guy grabbed her and got her stuffed into the car because that wasn't part of whatever the lure he used was. So I do think she was lured outside. It's probably someone known to the family, maybe not closely known, but someone who would know where they lived, knew they had an eight-year-old daughter and took advantage of the situation and then also staged the stranger abduction angle. But I don't think the parents were involved. No, I agree. Now, despite this being one of the biggest missing person searches in Victoria's history, and despite a large reward being posted soon after Eloise went missing, no trace of her has ever been found. And another note of tragedy for this family, Eloise's brother, Blake, died at only 26. He was killed by howling a taxi on a rainy night. He wasn't seen, and he was hit by a car and later died. So our second missing person story we're going to talk about tonight is about a little girl named Rama Eldenawi. little background on her family. Hussein Eldenawi arrived in Sydney from a Lebanese village near Tripoli when he was 17 in 1988. And now that is something I learned today, that there is a Tripoli in Lebanon. And so then I had to go back and correct all my things where I called them Libyan. They are Lebanese because there's a Tripoli in Lebanon. Hussein later returned to Lebanon to marry Alia, who came from a neighboring village. They had four children in Lebanon before Hussein moved the entire family to Australia permanently in 2000. They had more children in rather quick succession. And I say that as someone who had several children in quick succession. 
By 2005, they had eight children, and Alia was pregnant with their ninth. All ten of them were living in a rental house in Lernia, which is in a suburb of Sydney. Members of Hussein's family leased small farms on the outskirts of Sydney to grow fruit and vegetables, and that's one of the ways they supported themselves. Hussein would sometimes work at his brother's fruit shop, and on the weekends he ran a small fruit stand himself at the local markets. But the main income for this large and growing family was Social Security payments that they received from the government. And that did not go down well with Hussein's father, Mustafa, and he had all but cut off contact with his son. This would play a major part in the early investigation. Police focused the investigation on this theory that possibly Rama had been abducted and taken back to Lebanon as the result of this family dispute. A little bit about Rama. She was 19 months old in November of 2005 and was the youngest child at that time. But like I said, her mom was pregnant. She was a sickly child. In the days leading up to her disappearance, she was having quite a bit of pain. She was both teething, but she also had mouth ulcers. And she had been crying pretty constantly for days. On November 9, 2005, it was just your usual day in the Eldenawi household. A number of relatives and friends visited, as they often did. According to statements to the police, there were no visitors after 5pm, but that is later disputed at an inquest. And that night, all the children, except for Rama, they were in bed by 9pm. Rama stayed with her parents because she was unsettled by the heat, and as you said, Charlie, she was teething. Hussein watched television while his wife made some food for the following day. According to her parents' statements to police, Rama fell asleep at around two o'clock and Hussein carried her into her bedroom and placed her in a double bed that was under a window. Two of her sisters were already asleep there. Two other sisters also slept in bunk beds in the same room. It was a hot night and the window, which directly faced towards the street, it was left open with a fly screen wire attached. Now, this wasn't the usual bed Rama slept in, but with her having a temperature due to the teething and not feeling well, I guess the thinking was the open window and the fresh air could help her sleep. The following morning, November 10, Alia woke up at around 7.30 when some of her other children came in to wake her up. She asked where Rama was and the older children tell her that she was still asleep. Now, that made Alia feel immediately uneased because it wasn't like the toddler to sleep that late. She goes into the bedroom and checks and sees the torn fly screen wire and realises that Rama isn't there. The family search for 30 minutes. They check under beds, in cupboards, anywhere a small child could hide. But there was no sign of Rama. Hussein then calls triple zero to report Rama missing He reportedly calmly tells the operator that they can't find Rama, that she was around two years old, the fly screen wire had been removed, and that she was wearing pink pyjamas with puppies on them. When police arrived on the scene, they found the fly screen wire attached, but there was a hole cut. A cable drum was located beneath the window. Some early reports also said the back door was left unlocked. Now, unlike with the Eloise case... The testing done with the screen proved that it was most definitely cut from the outside. 
As for the cable drum itself, Alia originally told police that she didn't know how it got there. She later changed the story and said that she had put it there a few weeks before Rama went missing, and then later said it was just a few days before Rama went missing that it was placed there after a yard cleanup. There was some time between these different versions, and most, if not all, of her statements and testimony were given through interpreters. So there is increased room for error here, but it seems like the police saw her changing story as trying to align with what her husband was saying in his statements. Rama's parents gave a photo to police to release to the media, as you would expect, and this is the picture you will see if you search for Rama online. It's a picture of a beautiful, happy toddler with big brown eyes, except that it wasn't a recent photo. This was a photo of Rama at only 10 months of age. Babies and toddlers change rapidly, as I'm sure you know, Allie. From 10 to 19 months, they get taller, they lose some of the roundness in their face, they generally start slimming down now that they're walking more. Rama was not only taller at 19 months than she was at 10 months, her hair was also longer. Why didn't the parents give a more recent photo? Did they not have one? I mean, we we don't know. I mean, it is possible considering she was the ninth child, they just didn't have any photos of her. It's also possible they didn't have a camera. I know we take for granted now with smartphones that you always have a camera with you and basically every cell phone has a camera. But in 2005, not everyone did. It was still something of a novelty, especially in low-income families. A major search started. Police helicopters took the skies and officers went from door to door in the area. Police divers searched creeks and dams, while a couple of dirty swimming pools and dams near a nearby freeway, they were drained. But no trace of Rama could be found. A task force was formed. Of course, like we said with Eloise, the family is always looked at first. But there was nothing evident in the early investigation that led police to think they were involved. There were no reports to the Department of Community Services, Neighbours and friends said the children appeared well cared for. There were no police reports for violence and the children were routinely taken to see the doctor. Police also looked into the possibility that she was taken overseas to Lebanon either by a childless uncle or because of that family dispute that you mentioned earlier, Charlie. They looked at CCTV footage at Sydney Airport for the days following Rama's disappearance, but there was nothing conclusive that could prove this is what happened. All their inquiries came to nothing. Based on these facts, the police quickly came to the conclusion that Rama had been abducted, but that her immediate family had no involvement in her disappearance. Police looked into known sex offenders in the area, and for years the police investigation went down this path. Although, this comes out later in a coroner's report, the police did collect DNA evidence from a suspect, someone who is a suspected sex offender who lived nearby, but it wasn't collected from his caravan, or what I would call a trailer, until about 18 months after Rama went missing. This man lived only a short distance from the Eldenawis and only had his elderly mother for an alibi the night Rama went missing. This man was never named for legal reasons, but he was twice accused of abusing young girls and also suspected of trying to lure children into his car 
at a local primary school, which I would call an elementary school. I'm translating for people as we go. This man was interviewed and he said on the night in question, he watched television and then went to sleep. He had only recently gotten power on to his caravan. But suddenly, he deposited $65,000 into his bank account about a week after Rama disappeared. So he went from barely getting electricity turned on to having a year's pay or more in his bank account. On top of that, they found out he called another suspected pedophile on the morning Rama was last seen. This led police down the path that possibly Rama was sold to a pedophile ring in the area. But the suspect claimed the money was from the sale of four motorbikes and that he had called this associate of his because he owed him money for a truck he had sold him. This path led nowhere and no more leads came from it. In 2001, the state coroner requested that an inquest be held into Rama's disappearance. When the lead detective, who his name is Sedgwick, when he went back to review all the evidence to write the brief for the coroner, there were reasons why the parents, in particular Hussein, he thought that he needed to be reinvestigated. And this was because in the initial search of the Denawi house, the police found gun parts of a pistol and some laptops that appeared to have been stolen. They also discovered Hussein had once been a heavy drug user. And this further became of interest to the detective because just a few weeks after Rama went missing, a source known to police came forward and told them that Hussein was a well-known drug dealer in the area. And this source claimed that Rama had swallowed an ecstasy tablet which had caused her death. Now Hussein was interviewed and he flat out denied that Rama had swallowed drugs of any kind and he was definitely not a drug dealer. However, he did admit that he did have a serious drug addiction. He told police in 2001 he spent almost six months going to nightclubs in the city almost every night and taking drugs like cocaine, heroin and ice. He asked family members to help him get over his addiction, but they basically turned their back on him. So Hussein took it upon himself to detox. He locked himself in his bedroom for 15 days and he refused to leave. And his wife backed this up. She confirmed with police she had to change the sheets around him because he wouldn't move. He didn't even leave the room to use the toilet. But Hussein was adamant that by the time Rama disappeared, he was no longer using drugs. Another theory brought up by the detectives was that Hussein hurled Rama against the couch in a rage, possibly over her inconsolable crying and that this incident led to her death. If this occurred, it was speculated that Alia most likely witnessed it. Alternatively, and somewhat along the lines of the ecstasy overdose theory, there is another theory that she was given a medication to stop her from crying, and that she was over-medicated, and it was an accidental overdose. Following either one of these scenarios, or any other accidental death scenario you could come up with, Relatives were contacted and Rama's body was removed and possibly buried on one of the farms the family had. The police brief to the coroner stated that they also found evidence that Hussein had at least one affair outside his marriage, though it's unclear if this was ongoing or if it had ended prior to Rama's disappearance. Adding this to what police already knew about Hussein's life outside his home, 
kind of this party lifestyle, this was more reason for them to keep digging. In the early hours on the day Rama went missing, several neighbors reported hearing the sound of male voices arguing from the Eldenawi house. They described the voices as, quote, Arabic, but I'm not sure if that means they were speaking Arabic or they were speaking English with an accent, and it probably doesn't matter. Honestly, the arguing itself might not matter. We know some of Hussein's family did not approve of how he lived his life between the drugs and the affair and welfare checks from the government. That this was a brother or an uncle at his house yelling at him, I mean, that doesn't sound unreasonable. But this is one of those cases where you can explain away all these little individual pieces, but when you take all of them together, it does start looking suspicious. And so, yes, all of these things heighten the suspicions of the detectives, even the detectives who originally assumed that this was a stranger abduction from the start. A lot of this information came out in the initial investigation. More came out later, but not a lot happened. Why wasn't anything done with this information at the time? As we said at the top of the episode, even though there are a lot of parallels between Rama's disappearance and Madeline McCann's disappearance, there was nowhere near the media attention, the public interest, or the police resources that Madeline McCann's case was given. For the first six months of the investigation, there were about 10 detectives working on the case. The next six months, there were between four and six, depending on the workload of other cases. And after that, it was just one detective. And that's only when he wasn't working on other cases. He wasn't dedicated to just this case. A comparison of this for around the same time period was the investigation into the disappearance of Daniel Morecambe, who went missing from the Sunshine Coast in 2003. At the time of Daniel's disappearance and in the years following, there were more than 100 investigators on the case, and it is said to be one of the most extensively investigated crimes in Queensland's history. And if you are interested in learning more about Daniel Morecambe, Casefile has just released an amazing episode on his disappearance, the investigation, and the subsequent murder trial. But a bit of information, Daniel Morecambe was snatched from the side of the road while he was waiting for the bus. Police initially believed that Rama was snatched from her bed while she was sleeping next to her sister's. Now, these crimes are equally as tragic and as pointless. Harming an innocent child is its inexcusable and the most disgusting thing a person could do. But the response of these two cases, they could not be more different. Daniel Morecambe was a gorgeous, Caucasian, bright-eyed boy from a middle-class family. Daniel received blanket media coverage and all the police resources that could have been offered. And this media coverage also continued in force for many years. Now, I have to admit, this is mostly due to the ridiculous strength and persistence of Daniel's parents. So nothing against that. Daniel deserved every resource and all the media coverage he received. But then so did Rama. And Rama Eldenawi was a beautiful little brown-eyed Australian girl with curly brown hair, but she was of Lebanese descent and she did not get this. It wasn't until, and probably due to, the coroner's inquest in 2012 that a lot more information came out. In the end, though, the coroner concluded in her findings 
that there was no conclusive evidence to suggest Rama's family was involved in her abduction. However, she did note that there were a number of troubling factors, such as the events of the evening, and there was also telephone conversations mentioned in the inquest. These telephone conversations were allegedly in code, and was that code for drugs? The code referred to gardening and bird watching and things like that. The Eldenauis, again, strongly deny this. No drugs or drug paraphernalia was found in the home, so there isn't much evidence to the drug or drug dealing angle, except that Hussein was a former user of drugs. There was also some strange behavior on the part of the parents that the coroner was troubled with. Allegedly, they were heard joking and laughing with other family members about the abduction and about splitting the reward money. The coroner, frankly, couldn't clear the parents either. And because of this, the coroner passed down an open finding and referred the case to the homicide unit to investigate. So the findings of the inquest, to boil it down, basically said the parents can't be ruled in, but they can't be ruled out. Basically, the coroner said, I have no idea what happened. Now, for their part, Rama's parents have always and continue to deny any involvement in their daughter's disappearance. There is currently a $250,000 reward for any information leading to Rama's whereabouts. Okay, so some thank yous. Firstly, to our patrons on Patreon. Thank you to Becky DH, Danielle O, Shay, Jesse, Kelly S and Loretta. And then to our beautiful five-star reviewers, thank you to Ing A. Wren, Little Apples, Melrom, Modo 654, CFD, and True Nor One. And if this is the same True Nor as the blog, or even if it's not, this is a, there is an amazing blog out there called True Nor Stories, and the writer for this blog does an impeccable job at researching and writing. If blogs are your thing, I highly recommend visiting and reading because the cases are truly fascinating. I'll put up links on our Facebook, but definitely check it out. We are on Facebook. We have the page where we post all the episodes and discussion group where we have discussions on the cases every week, cases in general, other podcasts we're interested in. We talk about documentaries, cute animals. It's just a great group with a lot of interaction. We are on Twitter where you can chat to Charlie and that's at InsightfulPod. I post photos on Instagram and that is at InsightPod. And we both respond to the emails insightfulpod at gmail.com. We have a PayPal for a one-off donation and a Patreon for an ongoing monthly donation. As I said, this next couple of weeks is all about missing Australian children. So we have this episode and then the bonus Patreon episode on Bung Siraboon. All links are on our website, insightpod.com, and you can listen to our episodes there and read our show notes and access some additional research if you want to read up some more yourself. And finally, it would mean the world to us if you would rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. It does give us a bump up the charts and brings more people to our podcast. And one last reminder, the Keystone, next Saturday, July 15, 2pm, Facebook for more information and to RSVP. So if I don't see you then, you will hear us back here next week. <laughs>